is Mark 6, 30 through 44. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villagers and, and, and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces, and of the fish... And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. I may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. My name is Craig Cody. I'm one of the elders here. Cody kids, please stay in your seats. Just, just wanted to clear that up. That was awesome. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 6 again, again today. Mark, walking through, looking more at Jesus. Um, and I have a question for you. Have you ever been really hungry? Really hungry. Um, I may have mentioned this to you before, but as a family for a little while, we were watching a show called Alone. It's a reality TV show. The premise is that they drop these people off on an island, a remote place, and they're all alone. And they have to survive, figure out a way to survive off the land. Uh, They have video cameras that they record themselves and kind of, it's a an ongoing video blog of their thoughts and what they're experiencing. Um, And one of the things that I remember about it, and I'm actually kind of experiencing it right now, is I remember watching the show and feeling very hungry just watching the show because it is a constant struggle for them to find food. They lived, it was an island uh, where they were living, and the main source of food that they had was this green seaweed-type vegetable that they would just stuff in their mouths, and they couldn't. They had to eat it because they had to eat something, but they just felt hungry all the time. They would talk about in their little diaries, their video diaries, about the foods that they craved. They were hungry, deeply hungry. Last week, if you remember, we talked about a grand feast put on, put on by a guy named King Herod. Um, but that feast, when he said it, it only served himself. It served the appetites, the carnal appetites of him and his privileged guests. It also dehumanized the people that served. And in the end, one of the greatest men that ever walked the face of the earth, John the Baptist, was murdered. That's the feast that he laid out. 
That's the way he addressed the hungers that he experienced. But by contrast, this week, and the contrast is intentional. Mark arranges his gospel with intentionality. By contrast, this week, another banquet is about to be laid out. Different context, different people, very, very different host. Jesus is the host. And he's coming to provide physical food, but really to address hunger of the soul. This provision in the countryside that we're going to see unfold before us is really one of the pivotal miracles in all of the Gospels. I always feel like when I, I was, I was just telling somebody earlier, I always feel like when I get to one of these really pivotal miracles, I can never feel like I do it enough justice. This is so profoundly awesome, and we're going to just scratch the surface of how great it is today. But this theme of hunger and satisfaction threads its way all the way through the Bible, but it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Here's another way to think about this time that we have right now. Okay, we come here, you come here, you came here this Sunday, you, you're going to listen to someone teach the Bible, preach the Bible to you, that's what we're doing right now. But framing it, how the, the Bible text frames it today, you can think of it like this. Jesus has a feast for you. He has something to nourish the deepest parts of you right now. So let's listen to him and let's ask him for help to do that right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need true food. You are the true food. Come and feed us now from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Mark 6, starting at verse 30, I want us to walk through this story, and I'm going to highlight three ways that Jesus provides, okay? He's going to take us from something to something. These are ways that Jesus provides, and here's the first one, from weariness to rest. So look again with me at Mark chapter 6, verse 30. We're going to read through verse 32. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. The disciples had just experienced literally otherworldly success. Think about what had just happened. When they placed their hands on a sick person, they were healed. When they called people to repent, they repented. They changed their lives and started following God. That is amazing. Imagine if you were one of the disciples. It'd be amazing, exciting, invigorating. But by this point, it was exhausting. They were exhausted. A lot of people had heard about their ministry, and now here they are, they're pressing around them to get their needs met, right? This is not only the isolated experience of the disciples. If any of you are familiar with Christian ministry at all, you would know that whether you're paid or you're a volunteer, you can testify that that's the way that it can be. I read this poem once. I wanted to share it with you. I think it captures the feeling. Mary had a little lamb. T'was given her to keep. But then it joined the local church and died for lack of sleep. Neil Kellenberger actually texted me a picture a couple, couple weeks ago. I think it's going to be up here on your screen. That says lead pastor, and then it says, on, I think on your right, yep. year one, there I am, I guess. Year five, there I am, the castaway, apparently. That's, that's what, something I have to look forward to, apparently. Great. 
What is Jesus saying here? It's instructive. What Jesus is saying, in some ways, is a rebuke. That Jesus did not, he did not do this. He did not gather them around and say, yeah, the work is hard. But God is greater. And look at all those people with needs. Back to work. You need to get to it. He did not spiritualize the moment and point to their weak faith. He was not guilt-tripping them into helping. Rather, he showed them compassion, which is obviously a big theme in this passage. In a sense, he saw them as human, weak, limited, and frail. That's really important. Moved by their condition, tired, weary, maybe even more weary than they themselves realized, he issues an invitation. He says, come with me to a desolate place. Come and rest a while. At the beginning of uh, 2017, my wife Darcy and I, uh, after spending nine years overseas planting churches, um, were given a really gracious opportunity uh, to take a sabbatical. It was a time for us to come away and rest a while. And I was reviewing just this week. We took some notes. We, After the time, some reflections, wrote them down. And I was reviewing them this week. And there was a little phrase that caught my attention. And I've been praying that this week for myself. I've been praying that this week for you. And here's the little phrase that I had written down. I don't know if I got it from a book or where I heard it, but it said this. What I want to offer to the world is not a 70-hour work week, but rather a well-tended soul. I think what we had gotten caught in when we were overseas is that we just needed to work and work and work. But that's not what I want to offer the world. I want to offer a well-tended soul. Jesus wants to tend to the disciples' souls here. That's what he's doing. How? He wants to give them rest by spending time separate from the hubbub with them. Life gets busy, right? That's true for all of us. Jesus isn't mad at the disciples here for them working hard or for being busy for a season. He's not upset. He's saying there's a rhythm, there's an ebb and a flow, a push out and a pull back, right? And so I want to issue that same invitation to you. I want to invite you to offer to the world a well-tended soul. How do you have a well-tended soul? Jesus said it. Come away with Jesus to a desolate place and be with him. Rest a while. True rest comes, and there's a lot we can say about true rest, but true rest comes when we recognize that Jesus did, by far, the most important work for us. He reconciled us to God. There is no work left for us to do to make ourselves right or lovable in the sight of God. The work is finished through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's finished. So going away with Jesus, being with Jesus is a time to press by the Spirit of God the great truths of Scripture down into your soul, down into your hearts. Time with Him in prayer and in the Word. I remember reading a while ago about uh, a rhythm that the great British preacher, pastor John Stott had with his life 
And he would, he would do this. He said it, it was this kind of a rhythm. An hour each day, a morning, afternoon or evening, a morning each week, a day each month, and a week each year. Now, I don't have that kind of time, but what he, was, what he was saying is it was a pattern of the ebb and the flow, the push out and the pull back. He's talking about the pull back. What if, and I would commend this to you, this is something that I have in small ways incorporated into my life, that kind of rhythmic pattern to life. Maybe for you, it's just 10 minutes a day, and then one time each week you take an hour to be with the Lord. Maybe it's 30 minutes each day, and then one time each week, maybe an early Saturday morning, you're, th- you're three hours with the Lord. But heed the invitation of Jesus. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. It's only in Jesus that you'll find the rest you seek. All right, so that's the first way we see Jesus provide is from weariness to rest. And here's the second one. He provides, takes the people from being shepherdless to shepherded. Look at verse 33. Now many of them going, now many saw them going and recognized them. And and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus' ministry was a long stream of compassion toward those who were in need, right? And, and so the crowds are chasing after him. They've seen and heard the things that he can do. And this trip that they take, we just can skim over it, but it's actually eight miles by foot. They ran there, four miles by boat. The disciples and Jesus are traveling there. They run so fast, they beat him there. And Jesus does not, though, respond with resentment or bitterness This is their getaway. This is the time they were supposed to relax and rest. But Jesus doesn't do that. In verse 34, it says he he had compassion on them. Compassion, that word in other places can be translated tender mercy. And what it's conveying is something you feel in your gut. Something that makes you sick to the stomach. Kind of like we might say something makes you love sick. You ache so bad your stomach hurts. But it's it's a feeling in the heart. This feeling of pity is so deep in Jesus that it makes him sick to the stomach when he looks out at them. There's a theologian you guys might have heard me mention before. His name's B.B. Warfield. Um, He was an American theologian in the late 1800s. And he wrote an essay that I've also mentioned before on the emotional life of Jesus. He called it the emotional, the title of the essay is The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in his analysis of all the different emotions that Jesus felt, he said this, and this is a quote, The emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus is no doubt compassion. This essay is really important. I commend it to you. I'd recommend you read it. But what is also important to understand about Warfield, this theologian, is his own life. Just after Warfield got married, his wife suffered a horrible mental breakdown that uh, basically incapacitated her for life. She became an invalid, totally unable to care for herself. They never had any kids. He never left her side for more than two hours at a time. He never traveled away from the seminary where he taught the entire time she was alive, except for one time 
when he was taking her with him to try to help her get better, and it failed miserably. One of Warfield's students said this about him, though. He said, I used to see them, that is, him and his wife, walking together, and the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. The loving care, the compassion. Friends, Jesus sees your need. He sees our needs. And he sees our inability to provide what we need for this life and for all eternity. And instead of pushing us aside, what we see in a small way with B.B. Warfield, we see in a profound way with Jesus. He shows us tender mercy. He sees what you need and he provides. That's the message of the gospel. He sees what you need and he provided But, and I don't want you to miss this, when you think about the gospel, this isn't what Jesus has done in providing for us and showing us tender mercy is not an unemotional, detached, ivory tower looking down on his creation and then shooting these like lightning bolts of blessing down on us. That is not the compassion that Jesus shows us. The compassion of our God brought Jesus to the place of a servant among us who feels what we feel, who is sorrowful in the same ways that we are sorrowful and suffered the same ways that we suffer, who he knows our griefs and he carries our sorrows. He wept over it. He feels what pains you. He feels what hurts you. That's what compassion is. And that's the compassionate Savior that we have. He sees, and he feels, and he cares. And then he responds. What is it specifically that's making him sick to his stomach? Look at the end of verse 34. It says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's a leaderless people, a shepherdless flock. There's no shepherd for the people. But he came to turn a shepherdless flock into the people of God. That's what he was doing here. And sadly, that shepherdlessness of the people of God is nothing new. If you go back to Ezekiel, there's a, there's a passage hundreds of years before where Ezekiel says, God speaking through Ezekiel says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. The sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. These people were shepherdless, sheep without a shepherd. But now, the good shepherd had come, and he would feed his sheep. Though he's never explicitly mentioned in this passage, Moses is all over the place. God chose Moses long before Jesus walked the earth. God chose Moses to be his spokesman, his leader, his, in a sense, shepherd, that led the people out of the captivity in Egypt. And there in the wilderness, God provided for the people, for his sheep. How did he feed them? Many of you know this story. He gave them manna, bread from heaven. It literally fell from the sky. But it came with a really important qualifier. I'm going to give you this bread, but hear this, people. Deuteronomy 8.3 says this. God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Bread will drop from the sky. God's going to give it to you. But the bread that you really need, the bread that brings you life, true food, that's the word of God. Jesus, the true and greater Moses for the people of God, the true shepherd of the people, though he would give them actual food, physical food, to fill their physical bellies in just a few minutes, he gives them true food here. Look at the very end, the last phrase of verse 34. And he began to teach them many things. He fed their hungry souls with the word of God. Friends, we all come in here today hungry, all of us, whether you realize it or not. The world promises satisfaction that it cannot deliver. You know, later today, probably the majority of us are going to watch some sort of a sporting event on TV. A trophy will be hoisted into the sky. Victory will be theirs. Glory, joy. The pinnacle of human physical achievement, right? Super Bowl. You're the winner. But every Super Bowl champion will tell you it doesn't last. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. Here's what lasts. Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Come to Jesus. Come feast on him. Come feast on him through his word. He is the good shepherd of your souls. He will provide what you need. Okay, so we've seen two ways he's provided. We've seen him just now provide from a shepherdless people to a shepherded people. And now finally, from emptiness to provision. We get to the heart of the miracle. Mark six thirty-five, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. It's a very practical uh, Suggestion by the disciples, right? It's, it might even be considered compassionate in a small way. They're far from home. The people that had run there, they need to go home before it gets too late. It gets too dark. might be unsafe. They need, they're hungry. And Jesus, though, responds in a peculiar way. You give them something to eat. You feed them. The, the disciples at that point come a little bit unglued. The response that they give is disrespectful. Uh, it's the equivalent of saying something like, oh, okay, great, Jesus, yeah, how about I just take all my money that I made over the last year and buy all these people something to eat? Kind of like that. Not a good attitude. Sarcastic. Jesus graciously responds, though, and he says, go and see. How, many, how much food's out there? How many loaves are there? They come back, five loaves of bread and two fish. So then Jesus tells them all to sit down, verse 39, on the green grass. Don't miss that sweet detail. The green grass. He's the shepherd, remember? Psalm 23. Do you remember how it starts? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then groups them up, 50s and 100s. Why? 
That's what the people of God did when Moses was the shepherd of the people. These people are becoming the people of God. And then Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said the traditional blessing of that time. This is the traditional blessing. We have it recorded. It's not in, it's not in the text there, but we have other, other sources that tell us. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then the feast begins. Straight from the hands of God. Psalm 145 says this. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them your, their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The text simply says that Jesus broke the bread and divided the fish. And the grammar tense that that, that verb is, breaking, means that he kept breaking and breaking and breaking kept giving and giving and giving. The food kept coming. But he didn't hand it out. The disciples did. Why would Jesus do that? Maybe he's efficient? Unlike the other miracles, Jesus wanted the disciples involved in this one, and they were. He was showing them something, and he's showing us something. Jesus provides the feast, and he gives us the bread. If you fed spiritually on the bread of life, if you have fed spiritually on Jesus, you are called to offer that bread to a needy world. No matter how weak you are, no matter how sinful you are. Listen to this quote by Elizabeth Elliot. I love this one. If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ, I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes. With the same feeling, the disciples, with the, with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it is his blessing. You have a broken heart. What's weighing you down? Is your heart weighed down? Do you feel weak, limited, frail? Do you not know what to do? Put it in the hands of Almighty Jesus. He will use you to feed the masses. Verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. His provision is total, complete, satisfying. Jesus transforms emptiness into provision. Just yesterday, Darcy and I were talking uh, about a story we heard a few years ago about an Australian pilot whose name was James Knight. In 1962, Knight was flying a long distance across a very remote part of Australia. It was the Australian outback. There's nothing there. Not that I've ever been there, but if you look, if you look at the maps, nothing there, no people, no gas stations, no civilization. His instruments 
on the plane were a little bit off. And so when he set off, and you have to go in one particular direction in order to reach the next destination, but his instruments were off, and he ended up in the middle of nowhere. No one found him for years. Though they, at the time, they had actually launched one of the biggest rescue missions in, at that time in the history of Australia. Well, several years later, they happened to find his plane. The plane was completely intact. He had landed it safely in the desert. He had just run out of fuel. And they found James Knight dead next to the plane. They hauled the plane back. And now the plane's fuselage actually sits in a museum in Australia. And if you go and you look at that fuselage, the the part of the plane, you will see there etched in the side a series of tally marks. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way to eleven. Eleven. Probably the number of days that he was sitting there next to the plane. But below that, he etched a note to his fiancée. And it said this, something to this effect. If you ever find my bones, throw them in the biggest river you can find, so I will never thirst again. Brothers and sisters, our spiritual thirst, our spiritual hunger, that desire for God, that desire, that hunger for something to satisfy us, will only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 26, Isaiah, with a prophetic eye, looks forward to a great feast in the presence of God. He says this, so this is Isaiah 26. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. This is verse 7 of chapter 26 in Isaiah And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over the people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The feast in the wilderness that day with Jesus. The feast with the 5,000 was just a mere foretaste of the feast that is described in Isaiah 26. But as they sat there on the hillside, All of them could look into the face of Jesus and know that Isaiah 26 would come true. They could look into his face and they could say, This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus is the one who provides. Jesus is the one who transforms weariness to rest. He is the one who provides. He transforms shepherdless people into a people shepherded by the good shepherd himself. He is the one who transforms emptiness into overflowing provision. Jesus prepared the feast and he gave you the bread. Go and give. 
and watch him multiply that through you to the nations. The nations who are like sheep without a shepherd. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that you are our good shepherd who laid down his life for us, your sheep. We were sheep without a shepherd, but you have come and you have rescued. We waited and you came. This, you are the Lord and you have provided. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.